Greetings. We are continuing our discussion on the theological challenges that Islam presents to the Christian faith. And in this session, we are starting our discussion on the doctrine of man. Just like in the previous sessions, we said we fundamentally disagree uh, about who God is between Muslims and Christians. There is also a fundamental disagreement about who man is. So it's very important that as you are learning about Islam and as you desire to witness to Muslims, you have to understand where Muslims are coming from. You might be thinking you are sharing the good news of God's salvation with a Muslim, but he might think to himself, I don't need salvation. What good news are you talking about? So you're going to be frustrated in your attempts to communicate the gospel unless you know where they stand. So in this hour, we want to talk about the Islamic view of human beings. We're going to talk about creation of man. We're going to talk about the sin of man. We're going to talk about the human purpose and nature. In the next session, we are going to talk about the Islamic view of salvation. What is man's problem and what is God's solution from the perspective of Islam? And then after that, we will uh, respond from the Christian perspective. So let's begin with the, looking at how the Quran describes the creation of Adam and Eve. There are three main passages in the Quran that have a story of creation. Surah 2, verses 30 to 39. Surah 7, verses 11 to 25. And Surah 20, verses 116 to 123. As you read the Quran, you will see that these stories are repeated often. Sometimes one version of a story gives an additional detail that one version doesn't have. But I want to look at a pass one of the passages, Surah 2. So if you open the Quran to Surah 2, verses 30 to 39, we will look at it in detail. I will start reading from verse 30 on Surah 2. Now, on the surface, again, you will always notice that Quranic stories are very similar to biblical stories. But when you look deeper, there are fundamental differences. So this is a long account, but I want us to look at it very carefully. This, this passage gives you a lot of information about human creation, about sin, about the role of Satan in the scheme of God's ways. So verse 30, Surah 2. Behold, thy Lord said to the angels, I will create a vicegerent on earth. They said, Will thou place therein one who will make mischief therein and shed blood while we do celebrate thy praises and glorify thy holy name? He said, I know what you know not. And then in verse 31, it, so this passage doesn't, immediate, doesn't talk specifically about how God created Adam, but in Surah 15, verse 26, I don't want you to turn to it, but just know Surah 15, verse 26 it says, we created man from sounding clay, from mud molded into shape. And then in Surah 32, verse 9, we read this, but he fashioned him in due proportion. I will read the verse. So it, talks, it talks about how God fashioned man, the first man. So it says, it says, but he fashioned him in due proportion and breathed into him something of his spirit and he gave you the faculties of hearing and sight and feeling. So although this passage in Surah 2 doesn't talk about specifically the creation of Adam, Surah 32 verse 9 talks about how God breathed his spirit into Adam. 
Now, the Quran doesn't say anything about how God created Eve, and actually the Quran never mentions the wife of Adam. But according to Islamic traditions, Muhammad has said that woman has been created from man's rib. Of course, reference to the Genesis account. But let's get back to Surah 2 and we will continue the story. And he taught Adam, from verse 31 I'm reading, and he taught Adam the nature of all things. And then he placed them before the angels and said, tell me the nature of these if you are right. And then in verse 32, verse 33, uh, it says, they said, glory to thee of knowledge we have none, save what thou hast taught us. In truth, it is thou who art perfect in knowledge and wisdom. So it's kind of like there is a little, God is kind of teaching angels a lesson by creating Adam here. And then verse 33, he said, O Adam, tell them their natures. When he had told them, God said, Did I not tell you that I know the secrets of heaven and earth, and I know what you reveal and what you conceal? And then this is a very, very important verse, verse 34. And behold, we said to the angels, Bow down to Adam, and they bowed down. Not so Iblis. He refused and was haughty. He was of those who reject faith. This is the fall of Satan, according to the Quran. Satan was an obedient, obedient angel, but when God creates Adam, he commands all the angels to prostrate themselves before Adam, but Satan did not do that. Now, this is very problem, problematic in itself, that why God would have angels bow down to a creature. But we will talk about that a little bit later on. But Surah 2, verse 34, that's the fall of Satan in Islamic theology. And then we said, verse 35, O Adam, dwell thou and thy wife in the garden, and eat of the bountiful things therein, as where and when you will, but approach not this tree, or ye turn into harm and transgression. We are not told what kind of a tree it is, and why they're not supposed to eat of the tree, but that's, that's all it says in the Quran. Then, verse 36, did Satan make them slip from the garden, and get them out of the state of felicity in which they had been? We said, after the, the sin of Adam and Eve, which other passages in the Quran describe this a bit in more detail, but then we read here, we said, get ye down, all ye, all ye people, with enmity between yourselves, on earth will be your dwelling place. According to Islam, paradise was not on earth, the garden of Eden was not on earth, it was in heaven. And when Adam and Eve sin, God throws them out of heaven Onto earth. Verse 37, then learned, then, this is another very important verse here, then learned Adam from his Lord words of inspiration, and his Lord turned towards him, for he is often returning most merciful. Verse 38 and 39, I'll read. We said, Get ye down all from here, and if, as is sure, there comes to you guidance from me, whosoever follows my guidance, on them shall be no fear, nor shall they grieve. Verse 39, but those who reject faith and belie our signs, they shall be companions of the fire, they shall abide therein. This, in a nutshell, covers all the fundamental aspects of Islamic view of man, sin, and salvation. But let me, let me start unpacking this and other passages of the Quran uh, little by little. Let's first talk about human nature. According to Islamic theology and the Quranic accounts, 
God has shaped man as, and has breathed his spirit into man. But um, let me read you a passage from a, a quote from a Muslim theologian by the name of Katarega. Katarega says, Some modern Muslim scholars believe that the Quranic evidence suggests that man has a certain godlikeness. But the orthodox Muslim belief is that man has no godlikeness. There is no reference in the Quran to, to, to the idea that man is made in the image of God. That is uniquely a biblical perspective. Katarega continues. He says, Thus God breathing into man his spirit is believed by some scholars to be the faculty of knowledge and will. And, and, so, and this faculty of knowledge and will, if man uses it rightly, it gives man superiority over all creation. But this is not to make God and man similar. God is absolutely transcendent. After the creation of Adam, we see the account of God commanding angels to prostrate themselves before Adam. This has created a great deal of literature in Islamic thought. Some Muslim commentators find this passage very difficult to explain. Um, because Muslims know that only people should only bow down before God. So some Muslim commentators say, no, this passage means that they didn't prostrate, God didn't tell them to prostrate themselves before Adam, but just to kind of bow their head in respect. Some Muslim commentators have said, well, in that period, it was okay to prostrate before a creature at, in that dispensation. But many say, well, no, it's like God, just like today Muslims bow down towards the direction of Mecca, to the Kaaba, um, that's a sign that they are directing the... Um, well, let, let, me, let, me, let me start that again. Bowing down to Adam is like bowing down towards Kaaba in Mecca. People bow down towards the building uh, in Mecca, but they don't worship the building. They direct their prayers to the God uh, above that building. So in the same way, uh, angels were to prostrate before Adam, but directing their worship to God. But regardless of the differences of, of opinions, uh, this account gives a high dignity to man. So Muslims say that the greatest of God's creation is human beings. Um, this, uh, and this and other uh, passages in the Quran create a sense of great dignity of man in Islam. But you will see a paradox later on, because on the one hand, some Muslims pride themselves that what a dignified creature man is. On the other hand, God is so distant that our own relationship with God can be that of a servant. As we look at this account, after the, the prostration of the angels, then we also notice the, the disobedience of Satan. Uh, in mystical Sufi Islamic thought, this has created a lot of uh, controversy, this passage. This might be shocking to you, but some Sufis have even said this about Satan. They have said, Satan is the greatest of angels because he loved God so much that he would not prostrate himself before God's creature. Very, very different view of Satan. The passage quickly refers to Adam's disobedience, the passage that we read in Surah 2. But uh, we, I want to talk more about human sin according to Islam. This is a very, very important issue. 
Humans were created innocent and free. But the first parents decided to sin and disobey God. Sin, however, is not an eradicable part of human nature. Let's uh, read a little bit more detail of this disobedience in Surah 7. Surah 7, verses 12 to 18. Let's start from verse, well, I'm not going to read all the verses. I just want to highlight some of the passages. Let's start from looking at Surah 7, starting from verse 11. Verse 11, God commands all the angels to bow down before Adam. All the angels obeyed except the devil. In verse 12, God says, why didn't you bow down to Adam? In the second part of verse 12, this is how Satan responds. He said, I am better than he. Thou didst create me from fire and him from clay. Then, in ver- and then verse 13, God says to, to the devil, you know, get away from me. And then verses 14, 15, and 16 uh, Satan says, okay, I will, I, will obey, I will be banished from your presence, but give me a chance to trick human beings. And then, you know, again, verse 16, 17, 18, this conversation continues. Satan says, give me a time so I can deceive people, I can lie to them, and God gives the devil permission to deceive those who will follow him. Then verse 19 picks up the story of Adam, and God puts them in the garden, and tells them to avoid approaching one particular tree. Then verse 20. Pay attention, this is a very interesting verse. Then began Satan to whisper suggestions to them, bringing openly before their minds all their shame. Now, it's interesting that as you read the Quranic account, sometimes they seem very confused compared to what the, how the Bible presents the story. So, you know, it's like, as a Christian, of course, reading this verse, it's like the question comes up, what is the shame of Adam and Eve before they have sinned? Did you notice that in your text, that it says, bringing openly before their minds all their shame? This is before the fall. And then it continues that Satan told, uh, um, Satan tempted Adam and Eve with this comment. It says, your Lord only forbade you this tree lest you should become angels or such beings as live forever. Again, Satan is tempting them that they can live forever and they can become like angels. But again, uh, we had already read that angels had prostrated to Adam. So they were already greater than the angels. And again, there was no sin. So there was no talk of Adam and Eve dying. God had created them and there was no sin or judgment. So, I mean, it, it seems to be somewhat confusing about why Adam and Eve would be tempted and what kind of shame would they have, but that's what the Quran says here. And he swore to them, verse 21, and he swore to them both that he was their sincere advisor. So, verse 22, so by deceit, he brought about their fall. When they tasted of the tree, their shame became manifest to them, and they began to sow together the leaves of the garden over their bodies. And their Lord called unto them, Did I not forbid you that tree and tell you that Satan was an avowed enemy unto you? They said, Our Lord, we have wronged our own souls. If thou forgive us not and bestow not upon us thy mercy, we shall certainly be lost. God said, Get ye down with enmity between yourselves. On earth will be your dwelling place and your means of livelihood for a time. He said, Therein shall you live and therein shall you die. 
but from it shall you be taken out at last. This is a more detailed account of the fall of man. Satan is, is, is portrayed as one who can whisper suggestions and deceive people. Satan can't force man to disobey, but he can lead man astray. Now, on the surface of it, this seems, again, very similar to the biblical account in many ways. But Islamic theology treats this account very, very differently than how Christians look at the fall. Whereas in Christian theology, man's disobedience is viewed as a fundamental turning point away from God. According to the Muslim perspective, this was only a little slip on the part of Adam and Eve. This was a little mistake. Some Muslims have said it was a little misunderstanding. For, for Christian theology, everything changed after the fall. But for Islam, this hardly plays any role in their understanding of man's place in the world. Let me read you some comments by some Muslims. One Muslim author says, Adam's, Adam being expelled from the garden has been interpreted by small-minded people as a sort of punishment. But the order, God's order to Adam and Eve, you know, that get down to earth was given after God had forgiven them. Adam was created as God's representative on earth. He had to come down to this world to manage it. Another uh, Muslim author makes this comment. He says, the Christian witness to original sin is completely uh, contrary to Islamic witness. Islam teaches that the first phase of life on earth did not begin in sin and rebellion against Allah. Although Adam disobeyed Allah, he repented and was forgiven and even given guidance for mankind. Man is not born a sinner and the doctrine of the sinfulness of man has no basis in Islam. Another Muslim author, a very famous theologian by the name of Al-Farughi, makes this comment. He says, In the Islamic view, human beings are no more fallen than they are saved. Because they are not fallen, they have no need of a savior. So uh, we will talk about salvation in the next hour. But so we see that because there is no sin, there is no need for a, a saving solution for sin. Uh, Farugi goes on to say, Islam teaches that people are born innocent. Islam does not believe in original sin. And its scripture interprets Adam's disobedience as his own personal misdeed. It was a misdeed for which he repented and which God forgave him for it. Abdullati, another Muslim theologian, makes this comment. He says, it's, it, it, the fall is a symbolic event in the Quran. It tells that human being is imperfect uh, and needs to struggle to become more perfect. It says, um, committing a sin or making a mistake, as Adam and Eve did, does not necessarily change human nature. Man is born, according to the Quran, man is born in a natural state of purity or fetra. This is a very key term in Islamic understanding of man. Another Muslim theologian claims that um, Man's fall is a highly allegorical story, and the purpose of the story is that every man must carry on a struggle with his passions until he acquires the mastery over them. And then he says, Adam didn't sin. Adam 
was just forgetful of God's command. He didn't do it intentionally. Again, many Muslims have said this was just a little mistake. This was not a major violation of God's law. And in fact, one theologian has said to call Adam a sinner is unbelief. Now, why are Muslims so reluctant to see a more grave situation in these stories? Because, I mean, that's, that's the basic fundamental belief about man in Islam. That man's problem is not sin, but forgetfulness. And man does not need a savior. Man needs a teacher, a guide. There is also another issue going on here. This is something I did not mention earlier in this course. When we talk about the Islamic view of prophets, according to Islam, all prophets are sinless people. Or, if they are not sinless, they were prevented from committing major sins. Now, there is a problem here because Adam is recognized in the Quran as the first prophet and apostle. And so, an apostle and a prophet, by definition, Islamic theology, cannot be sinful. And... Uh, you know, when the verses we read that God gave him inspiration and guidance, that's the verse Muslims use to claim that, you know, he received a prophetic, a prophetic commission from God. And so, and in Islamic traditions, Muhammad also made the claim that Adam was both a prophet and an apostle from God. So, the Muslim theologian Katarega makes this comment. He says, Adam, having repented, was made Allah's first messenger on earth. He was to show guidance to his children. How could God entrust such a high office to an evildoer? So there is, a, there is a very strong resistance to view the fall in very significant terms. And another thing I want you to understand about the Quranic view of sin is that the Quran simply does not focus a great deal on sin. Now, there are a number of Arabic terms used in the Quran for sin. And uh, many of these terms are similar to some of the Hebrew terms we have. But most, the, the, most of the uh, sins, the, the Quran talks about certain sins like coveting or adultery or pride. And, and these sins are denounced on occasion, but the, the most important sin in Islam is the sin of shirk. So, and shirk means associating a partner with God. That's the main sin that the Quran is, is, is concerned about. Not the biblical view of sin as missing the mark of God's perfection. The term that, that in the Arabic term, khata, which uh, comes close to the idea of missing the mark, it only occurs five times in the Quran. So just the, 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 the biblical Focus on the gravity of sin is simply not an issue in the Quran. And the Quran is also very emphatic that one person's sin, well, one person is not respons responsible for another person's sin. I'm going to give you a number of references to just write down. Surah 6, verse 164. Surah 17, verse 15. Surah 35, verse 18. Surah 39, verse 7, and Surah 53, verse 38. It's, it's constantly repeated in the Quran. Uh, let me just read one of these verses. Surah 6, verse 164. Not, not the whole verse, just this portion of the verse. 
It says, no bearer of burdens can bear the burden of another. So everybody's responsible for their own sin. And it makes no sense that because, you know, one sin cannot be transferred to another's account. And as I said, the key sin in the Quran is the sin of shirk or associating partners with God. Surah 4, verse 48, and Surah 4, verse 116. And he says, God will not forgive those who commit that sin. Let's talk about human purpose according to, the, according to Islam. What is the purpose of man? What is, uh, what, what is the point of human creation? Uh, the Muslim theologians today talk a lot about man was created to be God's representative on earth. Uh, the Arabic term for that is Khalifa. Uh, God gave uh, Adam the honor of being his Khalifa on earth. Surah 33, verse 72. Surah 17, verse 70. Talk about God created the world and gave man the mastery over the creation. God gave, created the world for man to enjoy. Now, these verses are in the Quran, but uh, you need to know that this is a very, very modern understanding of the, nature, of the purpose of man in Islam. Now, Muslim theologians today really emphasize these aspects in response to the Christian view of man. But traditionally, the only... Uh, Traditionally, the theme that has been emphasized the most is the view that God is the Lord and man is his servant or slave. And we've read this already previously, Surah 51, verse 56, that God says, I have only created men that they may serve me. So the purpose has always been that man is a servant of God. And that's, that's the highest achievement that we can have. But again, today Muslim apologists try to uh, give a greater sense of man's dignity in Islam. I want to read you some passages from Muslims that gives you insight about the Muslim view of man. I'm going to quote again from Al-Faruqi. Ismail Al-Faruqi was a very prominent Muslim theologian from Palestine who lived in America. He also was one of the founders of the Muslim Student Associations in America. Muslims really look up to him and his writings. And these are the kind of comments Al-Faruqi makes. He says, he's, he, 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 very, he engaged with Christians in dialogue, but really was very anti-Christian in his teachings. He says that Islam gives a great dignity to man, and Christianity makes man this weak, sinful, pathetic creature. Listen to what he says. He says, Christianity calls man to respond with faith to the salvific act of God. Christianity wants to convince man that it is he for whom God has shed his own blood. This is, this is Al-Faruqi saying this. He continues, man, according to Christianity, is certainly great because he is God's partner, whom God would not allow to destroy himself. Now, listen to what he says next. Farooqi says, this is indeed greatness, but it's the greatness of a helpless puppet. He says, Islam understands itself, Islam understands itself as, uh, Islam gives man 
he, uh, the dignity to take up his position in the world. Now, he makes some, I think, exaggerated comments here, but listen to what he says. Man is the world's innocent, perfect, and moral master. And every part of the world is for man to have and to enjoy. Man, as Islam defines him, is not an object of salvation, but its subject. And man is God's worthy partner, according to Islam, his khalifa on earth. Man is God's trustworthy khalifa, not a pitifully helpless person that needs to be saved. Shabir Akhtar makes this comment. He says, the difference between Islam and Christianity is this. He says, in Islam, there is no sense of tragedy. Christianity is filled with tragedy of the fall. But in Islam, Islam is very optimistic and hopeful about the potential of man. Um, this, this, these ideas have very severe consequences in practical life. I want to tell you a, a story about an African-American person, Muslim, a Christian, who became a Muslim imam. Christians, a group of Christians went to a mosque in Chicago and asked him why he had become a Muslim. Please listen to this. It's very important. The imam answered this way. He says, Islam offers a way for emasculated men to become something. Christianity, on the other hand, is a welfare religion. Jesus paid it all, and my people don't need that. Basically, he's saying, we black men, Islam gives us dignity and power and honor. Christianity tells us we are these hopeless, helpless people that need help from God. And that's why Islam is growing among many uh, black people in the world. We hear reports of people in France, uh, black men in France, in, the, in French prisons who are becoming Muslims. In America, you know, Muslims go into a drug-infested neighborhood and clean it up. They tell the black people, be strong, be a man, get up and defend yourself. We are not sinful, helpless people. God has given us the ability to master our environment. Our time has come to an end in this session, but I want you to know that uh, I, I just wanted to give you a brief perspective on the Islamic view of man. In the next session, we will talk about the Islamic view of human salvation.